What's going on, podcasting world? And welcome back to another episode of the Core Console TRX podcast coming at you about, I don't know, four weeks since the last one? Not quite, maybe three. Once again, the culprit is sitting across from me. Oh, it's totally my He's fault. He's way too busy to record and bring you guys knowledge. He's just too busy with his own life. I obviously don't care about our fans enough. Yeah, it was my fault this time. <laughs> I've been busy. And we got a special guest with us today. Zach, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Living the dream. Thanks, Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it, man. So uh, Zach just presented, uh, he's a fourth year at MUSC, and just presented his Grand Rounds topic, um, and I was his advisor. He, he, he literally was so desperate that he asked me to be his advisor, <laughs> and uh, he, he presented his topic, um, and we actually just kind of did it in the podcast room here, and normally, I mean, I've had a lot of good, you know, people that present stuff, and, and I don't try to oversell, like... The confidence boost or anything like that. I mean, I want him to do well, but I don't like. Get, I'm not a big fan of eighth, eighth place trophies or anything. And I cannot. He goes through his presentation. I was like, man, <laughs> I'm blown away right now. It was like the best, one of the best grand rounds I've ever heard by far. Just doing it, and he just kind of spit it off of the, you know, uh, you know, improv. He's going through, uh, you know, no, uh, no slides up on the board. He's just looking at his computer and perfect inflection. I was like, man. We gotta get you on this podcast. He's really increasing the expectations yeah, I don't, here. I don't like this. No, it's good. I'm a, I'm now, 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 everyone listening is like, "Holy cow, this He's, guy like, well, has the voice of an angel." He better be great, or I want my money back. I know. I'm a big undersell, over deliver kind of guy. Yeah. So this is. This I'm is a big me up. talk tons of trash and then just hope <laughs> for the best. <laughs> so uh, tell us about your topic, man. So my topic and what we're doing the podcast about today is the relationship between statin therapy and glucose dysregulation and whether or not that that causes patients to become diabetic. So how'd you, how'd you land on that? Cause I mean, I don't even think that's a adverse effect that a lot of people, um, unless you're dealing with, you know, actually starting patients on statins, if you're especially like the, for our dispensing colleagues, um, that may not be even be a adverse effect you even think about yeah it, it wasn't on my radar at all i was actually in my very first rotation as a, as a p4 and i was doing an ambulatory care rotation at musc and we had a, a physician that came into the the ambulatory care office and asked us that you know whether or not a statin could cause a patient to lose control of their blood sugar level she had a she had a patient that was previously controlled a1c less than seven whole nine yards and then all of a sudden started him on a statin to reduce his ASCVD risk and his blood fasting blood sugars went from 120 to 140, 160. No other changes, no, no nothing. And then, you know, she was just as confused as I was. And so at that point I, I had to do a little bit of research to, to find an answer and realize that this was actually a larger problem than I thought it was to begin with. I had heard it. Uh, it, it comes up with either glucose dysregulation or they'll just say can statins cause diabetes and they'll also say can statins cause dementia. I think we've even addressed it on this podcast and usually we'll just say, no, they can't. Turns out it's a little more complicated than that. So I'm very interested in this topic. I feel like we did. We, we more blew off the dementia part of yes, it. Yes. Well, we could. There was a, we, we had some studies for that. But I remember specifically bringing up diabetes and I was like, as far as I it's know, nonsense. There's, there's nothing that, that shows that. And then Zach came around. And Zach came around. Yeah, just made shattered your whole so world. so dumb. <laughs> so yeah, that's when we had to shut the podcast off. <laughs> no, so this is, good, this is a good one. I think this is uh, something that will benefit a lot of our listeners too. So I was excited and you know, appreciate you doing this. Um, where do you want to start as far as this topic? This is your show, so how do you want to? Do you want to just go through it just like you uh, did with Grand Rounds? Just kind of start with some of the background and all that. Yeah, so I guess we'll just start with 
you know, giving everybody a brief recap of, of exactly what statins are, because it's actually rather important to how this may impact our, our ability to regulate our glucose is to understand how statins work in the body and that kind of thing. So our statins are inhibitors of the HMG-CoA reductase enzyme, which is the rate-limiting step of the cholesterol biosynthesis pathway, also known as the mevalonate pathway. So it's actually one of the steps that's that's higher up on the, if you picture it kind of graphically, it's, it's higher up on the chain of, of events in how our bodies produce cholesterol. So a lot of, a lot of the, the inhibition that happens not only prevents the production of cholesterol, but it prevents the production of other, other molecules that our bodies may potentially need, and in this case may potentially need to help us regulate our glucose levels. So that is, again, just, you know, how statins work. It, it's a review for, for most people out there. So the, the big thing, again, is that it, it prevents the production of some of those intermediates that, that happen and, you know, that can cause us to lose control of our blood glucose levels. So, so those intermediates in some way interact with glucose and not just cholesterol. So not directly with glucose. It's basically how our bodies either secrete insulin, which as you know, as everybody knows, is, is a way for us to control our blood glucose levels or to affect our insulin resistance or in, in insulin sensitivity. So it's it's kind of a very indirect method. You kind of got to go through some hoops and, and, and get you know down several different pathways to see exactly how it, it affects glucose levels because it's not a direct you know mechanism that, right. that causes us to lose control. So uh, you're kind of into biochem too, huh? A little, little bit. Yeah. I, I, I knew another biochem major when I yeah, say one. Yeah, when you, when you spend four years of your life slumming it through the biochemistry, you, you actually come out on the other end with, a, with a, quite a bit of appreciation for it. So. Yeah, and zero friends. Exactly. So that's great. Yeah. See, I wasn't, and one of my technicians is applying for pharmacy school when she was a biochem major. Mm-hmm. So she'll make all these comments. Do you remember this from like lab and all of these labs and stuff? I'm like, yeah, I remember all that. I totally remember that. No idea. I never even took a biochem class. Really? In undergrad. In undergrad, not at all? Not till pharmacy school. Don't need it. Don't need that. <laughs> when you're Cole Swanson, you just, you just run with that <laughs> and just jump in. It. I, st- I did. I was a biochem major and still struggled in biochem. In I only did <laughs> the prereqs. Uh, oh, I didn't realize that. That's why you're so stinking young. Cole's like 12, I think. 12, Maybe. 22? 13, 13 in uh, November, dude. Come on. 13 and a half. <laughs> 12 and a half now. Yeah, it sucks. Makes me feel terrible about myself. Um, all right, so the you kind of walk through the pathway, and we can even post some of these um, well, with your permission, of, yeah, course. of course, we can throw them up some of these slides up on the uh, website and maybe use them as show notes or whatever. So you yeah. can kind of see them because it is kind of hard to describe, obviously, if you're not looking at it. But um, so kind of walking us to the pathway. Um, then what? Where, where are we going from here? So the like I said, the, the statins inhibit that HMG CoA reductase. And that can, like I said, it can in, inhibit our body's ability to produce some things that further on down down the pathway can help us respond to glucose or, or prevent our ability to respond to glucose. But one of the ways that it's been proposed that statins may cause us to have glucose dysregulation is by inhibiting L-type calcium channels, so kind of an off-target effect the statins may have. And really to understand how you this, this would cause a glucose dysregulation by inhibiting those, those calcium channels, you really need to understand how our bodies secrete insulin from our uh, pancreatic beta cells. So glucose that it's, it's in, our, in our blood after we eat you know, cake and pie and you know, anything like that. that All the essentials. Exactly. Right. Uh, anything that causes our blood glucose to rise 
That will cause our uh, uh, glucose to come into the pancreatic beta cell. Glucose is then used to make ATP. That ATP, when it's uh, when there is a high enough ratio of it compared to ADP, that uh, that ratio will actually work to turn off a potassium efflux pump in that beta cell. So it actually stops potassium from leaving the cell. This causes that cell to depolarize, which opens up those L-type calcium channels, which causes calcium to then come into the cell and cause an overabundance of calcium in the cell, which works out to our advantage because insulin secretion is actually calcium sensitive. So in order for our bodies to secrete insulin to respond to blood sugar, we need calcium to come into our beta cells. So inhibiting those calcium channels by statins, that kind of off-target effect that they may potentially have. Again, it's, it's important to, to note that all of these things, these mechanisms that we're going to talk about are proposed and nothing has been 100% proven in the literature and that kind of thing. So they may inhibit these calcium channels and that would, you know, significantly decrease our ability to secrete insulin. Hmm. So the the kind of method in, in which they inhibit that enzyme or that channel is not really known, but it is hypothesized that the more lipophilic the statin is, the more inhibition of that calcium channel that there is. So that's why you may hear that one of the one of the things that as I started digging into this first is, oh, you know, you need to stay away from the lipophilic statins. Those are the ones that are going to cause the most issue. That's where that kind of philosophy comes from. The problem is that most of our statins are actually lipophilic. So the only two that are hydrophilic are pravastatin and rosuvastatin. And as we, as we go through these mechanisms, you'll notice that pravastatin a lot of times tends to be on the good side of these things rather than the bad side. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit at the end. It's just another reason to use Crestor, I guess. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Maybe oh. we're going to dig into the Jupiter trial. Yeah. We'll find we'll out. Call. <laughs> Spoke too soon. Oh, yeah. my gosh. I'm so embarrassed for him. Sorry about that, Zach. That's okay. You know, we can't help it sometimes. I missed Cole. I can pick on him. <laughs> Got to fit it all into one hour. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time. Yeah, so, you know, inhibiting those calcium channels is, is one way that statins may decrease our body's ability to secrete insulin, but we also have an, a decreased ability to produce ATP. So I mentioned earlier that one of the important things that happens when we use statins is that we inhibit our body's ability to produce some of these byproducts of that cholesterol synthesis pathway. One of the most important ones is a molecule known as ubiquinone, also more commonly known as CoQ10. So that CoQ10 molecule is a major part of the electron tra transport chain that happens in our mitochondria to let oxidative phosphorylation happen, which is a, a fancy way of saying that our bodies make ATP from, from ADP by phosphorylating it. And if we reduce our ability to produce ubiquinone by using a statin, we then reduce our ability to make ATP. And if we go back and revisit the way that our insulin is secreted, we need to have a higher ratio of ATP to ADP in order to start that cascade of how insulin is, is secreted from our, our beta cells. So if we can't make ATP, in theory, we can't really secrete insulin that well. So in, in, in theory, it makes sense that having a, a statin to decrease our ubiquinone and, and potentially even a, a high-intensity statin, a more enzyme inhibition, therefore less ubiquinone production, will cause more glucose dysregulation because it causes us to create, secrete less insulin than, say, a moderate or a low-intensity statin would. And there have been a few meta-analyses that, that show that high-intensity statins are more likely to cause diabetes than 
moderate intensity statins are. So that kind of echoes that same point. You know, that's another thing that we've said on this podcast is recommended against using CoQ10 like supplementation. Though generally that was in respect to the muscle aches and pains and saying that it's not really going to help with that, but just might be another way that we're wrong. Well, we, which I guess we well, discussed this when we, he was presenting his uh, his grand rounds to me the one time. Um, we kind of brought that up at the end, so we'll address the cookie ten things. You talk about that at the end, right? Or do you is that just one of the questions we talked about? Yeah, that was just that was just one of the questions. So um, we can we can go ahead and, and yeah, tackle it now then before I forget. <laughs> yeah, so the the same type of theory applies as to why it's not really recommended to take a CoQ ten, and I'll get it out here in a minute. A CoQ ten supplement for statin induced myalgias and that kind of thing is because that CoQ ten molecule is huge. It's absolutely mm. massive. And so our body's ability to absorb it is barely anything. Like you mm. would have to take this capsule that is, you know, as big as my hand in order to to get an adequate amount of CoQ10 in mm. your body to actually make a difference. So the same theory holds if you can't absorb CoQ10 that you take orally, it's not going to help with myalgias. It's also not going to help with this. Okay. So it's you're actually not wrong about this one. So, so if, like, say you drew a, a level and you've been suppl- supplementing, but so your level is increased, would the level not be increased or would it be falsely increased because it's just, like, floating around the blood that's not getting the cells? It probably wouldn't be increased to any okay. sort of significant degree. It probably, wasn't, it probably won't get absorbed through the intestine. Okay. I would imagine it's absorbed through the intestine, and I, I probably wouldn't even get through the transporters, I would imagine. Okay. Yeah, it's like I have that. zero kinetic uh, you know, studies to back that up. That's just my first thought. Yeah, Because there's that RPH, you know, on the QNAL CoQ10 commercials, and he's always just highly recommending it. Oh, he's he's you so know? confident he's in his so ignorance. Confident I'm not even sure his, he's really an RPH. In his QNAL, his QNAL CoQ10. <laughs> I never met that guy. Hey, I mean, if you pay me enough money, I'll, I'll tell, tell oh, you yeah. to buy whatever. There yeah. you go. This is CoQ10. <laughs> it's going to make you feel amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, they did not pay me to tell you this. It's gonna solve all your problems. <laughs> it's gonna solve all your problems. Not the diabetes or the muscle aches, but get an email from that guy tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Good. If he's, could you imagine if he's watching? That'd be hilarious. That'd be worth an angry email. Yeah. I am a pharmacist. <laughs> How dare you? All right. Anyways, what the where were we at? Because okay, so that's the uh, insulin secretion side of things. But you also mentioned insulin resistance. Yeah. So. You know, one of the one of the ways that people can develop diabetes is is developing an insulin resistance, and normally that comes about by having consistently elevated blood sugars to where you're increasing insulin amounts to where your body is is down regulating uh, receptors and transporters and things like that to reduce the ability to respond to insulin because your body views that increase in insulin as as a mistake basically. But you can also have decreased insulin sensitivity as a result of statin therapy again potentially. And one of the ways that this may happen is downregulating a transporter that is known as GLUT4. So GLUT4 is an insulin-sensitive glucose transporter. It's mainly in our myocytes, but it's, it's present in almost every type of cell that's in our body. And it is, like I said, it's, it's insulin-sensitive. So when insulin binds to the insulin receptor, that signals to GLUT4, hey, it's time to open up and let some glucose in. So that'll obviously lower our blood glucose levels and be able to use that glucose to, you know, make energy and, and, you know, all the fun things that we do with, with the sugar that's in our, in our blood. So one, what can happen is, is that again, this goes back to using a statin to not only prevent cholesterol formation, but it also prevents the formation of molecules that are known as isoprenoid precursors. And this is a very fancy word for basically saying that this is a group of molecules 
that's in the cholesterol synthesis pathway that is involved in making another group of molecules that are known as isoprenoids. Don't ask me what an isoprenoid is because I don't really know. But what I know is, Question. is that... Question. <laughs> so the, the isoprenoids play a very key role in the production of that GLUT4 protein. So what can happen is that decreasing these precursors of isoprenoids prevents our ability to make the isoprenoid molecules themselves, and then that prevents our ability to make GLUT4. So we have less of that glucose transporter to be able to bring blood glucose into our cells and out of the blood, which makes our which keeps our blood glucose levels high even if our insulin levels start to ratchet up. Time out real quick. Isoprenoid is uh, any... Um, class of organic compound composed of two or more units of hydrocarbons with each unit consisting of five carbon atoms arranged in a specific pattern. And apparently they're, they make up a lot of different physiological processes. That, that seems super open-ended. Right? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty <laughs> That big. seems like someone just wanted to name something. Exactly. <laughs> applies to a lot of things. Nonsense. Okay, sorry. Keep going with the important stuff. No, you're, you're good. And Cole, your wife's watching on Instagram. Oh, hey. <laughs> Hope, so, hope you have that Chinese food waiting for me. Huh? <laughs> oh, junk, shade. <laughs> gotta, gotta get that China food. So one of the things that we, we talked about, Mike, was the ability of, you know, how this would interact with the, you know, our ability to use like resistance training mm -hmm. to increase our, our insulin sensitivity. And the, the GLUT4 protein is actually how that happens. So if, if you don't mind going, going into... Yeah, so what exactly happens there? And in, in the, in the reason I kind of brought this up is um, kind of going off of what Zach kind of sums all these, these mechanisms up is saying that it's probably not one of these specific ways of causing resistance or um, decreasing secretion. It's probably a combination. And it kind of makes sense because, like, when I was thinking about it, um, if you think of, like, the myocyte, um, for one – you know, when we do resistance work, and that's one of the reasons we recommend resistance um, work to patients with diabetes is um, myocytes don't have endoplasmic reticulums. They have sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is like basically a way of storing calcium. When you have um, muscle contraction, you're going to release some of that calcium, and it starts this kind of cascade. There's a, it's like calcium comodulin, something I can't remember off the top of my head. But basically, that's going to signal those vesicles that uh, contain several GLUT4 transporters to the cell surface, even if there's no insulin present. So it's another way of getting that, um, those, those glue forward transport where it needs to go, even without insulin. So it's like upregulation opposite of the, what the statins are doing. Right. And, yeah. and then on the other side of that, if, you know, when you bring in ATP to kind of start this process, well, if you're exercising and ATP is being depleted, you're, you're donating a phosph, uh, you know, getting phosphate. Well, you're left with ADP left over, right? So in order to kind of salvage some of that, you get a, a, ADP and an ADP added together, which equals in one more ATP for energy, and then a leftover adenosine monophosphate, AMP, which is then going to release or uh, activate that kinase enzyme, which also will signal GLUT4 kind of down the chain of events, will signal GLUT4 um, to go to the cell surface and um, allow glucose into the cell. But if you're already inhibiting the actual GLUT4 for, from like a DNA, um, standpoint where it's actually not pre you're just going to get these vesicles that are not actually containing any glute for transporters in the first place and so even if you have those those safety mechanisms that are built into our our myocytes you're not actually getting the benefit of them because the glute 4 is not present anyway hmm. so it kind of all just goes from there 
Hmm. I read this this article on some physiology journal, and I just I don't, I've read read way too deep into it, and I got lost. Welcome to the Core Console Podcast, where we <laughs> take deep dives into biochemistry stuff and that doesn't biology. really affect what we're doing on a day to day basis. But I get sucked right in. Exactly, it happens to the best of us, man. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, so again, with with that decrease in in glute four, we we really just can't respond to insulin as well. So that can that can lead to elevated elevated blood sugar levels. Another, another thing that can happen is that in another mechanism that is, is not known, that our, our statins may cause our bodies to decrease the amount of adiponectin that is produced. Adiponectin is, is, is a weird little hormone that our, our adipocytes secrete, and it's, it's kind of a, a weird, weird way that, that it, it is produced. Again, that I don't, I don't know has fully been elucidated, or at least that from what I've seen. But there is a negative correlation between the amount of adipocytes that we have and the amount of adiponectin that is secreted. So someone that is, you know, more obese and has more fat, especially in the in the middle area, the belly fat, you know, that that apple shaped body that that you know you hear a lot about. That body, yeah. Exactly. And so those those people will actually secrete less adiponectin than those that are more trim and have less body fat. And so Mike is just full of adiponectin, basically. Exactly. I have the most adiponectin. <laughs> so, Mike, you can take a statin and be A-OK. I'm going to be great. Yeah, exactly. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Start one right now. Yeah, so, and, and adiponectin has a lot of different things that it does in the body as well. It can, you know, signal to our brain that we need to expend energy and cause glucose uptake in our adipocytes and, and all these different things. But what's important for what we're talking about here is that it adiponectin is an insulin sensitizer. So again, in some way that I don't fully understand that, you know, maybe Mike understands because he read some obscure article in some obscure journal somewhere along how, the way. How, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> it, it allows our body to res- respond better to insulin. So with a decrease in, in adiponectin, you would assume that there would be an increase in insulin resistance and also an increase in insulin production. And that is actually the case. So there was there was a study that was done, compared semistatin and pravastatin. Again, you see pravastatin come up here as far as being on the good side of these things. Semistatin was shown to decrease adiponectin levels. Pravastatin actually raised adiponectin levels. And so in these patients, they actually did a, a scale known as a quickie scale which is hilarious, by the way. And so that's, that's a scale that is is used to measure insulin sensitivity in the body. And those that were taking simvastatin actually had significantly lower insulin sensitivity than those that had pravastatin. And the ones that had prav- that took pravastatin actually had a slight increase in insulin sensitivity than they did at baseline. Hmm. So in a way, in this particular mechanism, pravastatin may actually be protective against the, the formation of diabetes. However, of, of you know, we're going to talk about five different mechanisms here. This is, this is the fourth of the five. This is the one that has the most iffy evidence. So there was a meta-analysis that was done. And really, that, that meta-analysis showed that the only statin that significantly lowered your adiponectin levels was rosuvastatin. So maybe Crestor are not the best of, of options there, Cole. From that, yep, from that mechanism, right? Yeah. Nice, Cole. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. So the, the last way that we may decrease insulin sensitivity is one that is the most kind of duh of, of all of these, 
in that one of the, the most common adverse effects and side effects of statin therapy, and we've already mentioned it a little bit, is statin-induced myopathies and myalgias. So in patients that have these myopathies and myalgias, whether or not they're reported or not, those patients are much less likely to exercise in general because it makes sense if your muscles are hurting, it's a lot harder to get up off the couch and, you know, go and, and do something active. So when you, when you think about that in combination with the fact that we have decreased ATP or ATP production, so we can't expend as much energy, we have decreased CoQ10 production, which is soon to cause myocardial, not myocardial, mitochondrial dysfunction, which can, again, just limit our ability to produce ATP even further. We end up in, in a situation where statin patients that are taking statins are much less likely to be able to exercise or if they are able to exercise to have a decreased exercise capacity. And so as you know, one of the, like we just talked about using exercise as a way to increase insulin sensitivity is something that is actually recommended by the diabetes association. And if patients taking statins can't do that, that's another way that they may cause um, some insulin resistance to, to develop. Phew. Hmm. Yeah. It's a lot. So how, I mean, I guess my question probably I could save it for the end, but like how significant would that really be? Like, I mean, you know, a beta blocker is going to decrease your um, exercise capacity pretty significantly because of your lungs and whatnot. I mean, would it, would it, if it was just, um, if it was just like decreased ATP, like would I notice like I just a minute off my mile time or something like that, you know, it's like, does it seem like it's significant? Uh, I'm honestly, I'm not sure as far as any sort of particular study that's been done as far as, you know, statins cause these patients to reduce their mile time by five minutes or yeah. something like that. Because I guess it's all, I mean, it's all potential mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right, so. Exactly. I've but, heard that if you yell really loudly at people who are on statins and get off the couch, mm -hmm. they respond much better and their mile time goes back up. Think that helps? I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Probably not. Can't confirm. We'll do the study. Mike goes <laughs> to his patients' houses and yeah. screams at them. What are you doing? They're like, oh, God. We thought we'd give you a fake address. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, anything else as far as the mechanism goes? I mean, that's that's really about it. It's those, those five mechanisms, which, again, just to kind of loop back, can be grouped into decreasing insulin secretion and then decreasing insulin sensitivity. So those are the, the two ways that, you know, people just develop diabetes in general, but they're, again, are those specific mechanisms as to how statins may cause diabetes. When you were going through that for the very first, like, you know, week or whatever, when you were starting to do your research, how many rabbit holes did you go down trying to find all that biochem? So many. Yeah. There's, there's not even a, a number of rabbit holes that I can, I can tell you that I went down because... Again, once this, we'll, we'll kind of get into when this was a, a kind of elucidated here in, in just a second. But once it was kind of a, a thought that this may happen, I feel like everybody and their brother that knew how to work a micro pipette, even sort of, you know, a little bit was, was trying to find a, a potential mechanism as to how this may happen. And, you know, they saw, oh, well, we injected this cell line with the equivalent of 120 milligrams of pravastatin and this happened. So this may be why statins cause diabetes. And so it was, had to, had to trudge through a lot of, a lot of garbage to get to the, to the other side. Yeah. The proposed mechanisms are well and good, but I'm more excited for this next part when we see, does it actually pan out or not? 
Patience, young Cole. <laughs> I don't have any. That's true. All right, let's fire it up. Jupiter trial. Yeah, so like like I said, one of the first times that this was kind of brought to light was in an analysis of the Jupiter trial. And the interesting thing is that when you actually read the Jupiter trial itself, there's just a quick little aside very close to the end. It's like, oh, yeah, by the way, most of these patients are not most of these, but more patients than not got diabetes in the statin group Whoops. compared to the the placebo group. So that may be a thing. And then on back on to cardiovascular risk reduction. I feel like there had to have been like a quick second where the companies that just paid billions of dollars to have this drug made were like, I mean, it's probably a fluke. We don't need to include that in the paper, right? <laughs> well, I mean, if you go and you actually look at the the numbers, again, just from that primary Jupiter trial, I could very well see where if, if you were just looking at it from a numbers basis that you would think that it was a fluke and some sort of weird statistical anomaly because there was no statistically significant increase in A1C. There was mm -hmm. no statistically significant increase in fasting blood glucose levels. All of these things that, that they were monitoring in these patients but then you did have a statistically significant increase in the number of patients that were diagnosed with diabetes. So if you don't have an increase in A1C and you don't have an increase in blood sugar levels, how do you have more patients end up with diabetes? There was probably some low-level staffer who noticed this and pointed it out to the big wigs, and they were like, no, we don't, we don't need to put that in there. And he probably <laughs> broke into somebody's computer late at night that's, and like just put in that sentence and saved it. I bet that's the exact thing. That and after happened. it yeah. was published, he probably got fired, maybe even murdered. Was so it you? I think we should remember <laughs> this guy or yeah. gal. Yeah. It's important. Wow. And now we're talking that, about it just because of them. We have a whole new theory yeah. from the Jupiter trial. That's that's a lot. I mean, it's as a lot long to as, take in. I mean, if, if stands can cause diabetes, then I think that is very reasonable. <laughs> Extremely. Yeah. So luckily enough for us, even though the initial authors of the Jupiter trial just kind of mentioned this as, as an aside, there were a group of people that took it upon themselves to analyze the results of that Jupiter trial to see if there was an actually statistically significant increase in diabetes diagnosis and what exactly happened in order to, to get us to that, what looked like, again, probably as, as a statistical anomaly. And so this analysis grouped patients in the, in the trial into either people that did not have any risk factors for the development of diabetes and those that had at least one risk factor for the development of diabetes. They define these risk factors as metabolic syndrome, impaired fasting blood glucose levels, which would be in, in their and definition would be between 100 and uh, 126 as far as a fasting blood glucose level, a BMI greater than or equal to 30, and an A1C of greater than 6. So basically you have people that would fall into a category of essentially being pre-diabetic and those that were not pre-diabetic. And so once you kind of group the patients into these different categories, you see where this you know, statistical anomaly, quote unquote, came from. So when you, you delve into, into the numbers, you have a statistically significant increase in the cases of diabetes in the patients that had at least one risk factor for diabetes and were taking Crestor compared to placebo. So this is a very specific subset of patients in this trial. So you had to have been taking Crestor, you had to have at least one risk factor for the development of diabetes, in order to have a statistically significant increase in the chance that you do that you did get diabetes. And the the flip side of this is that in the patients that did not have risk factors, did not have essentially pre-diabetes, 
the number of cases of new onset diabetes was exactly the same. You had 12 in the resuvastatin group and you have 12 in the placebo group. So absolutely zero increase in the chances of getting diabetes if you didn't already have a risk factor. So you can look at this and you can see, well, if you're listening right now, you can't look at this, but um, if you do, you know, are able to look at this, at the results, you can see that it, it makes sense that the resuvastatin therapy was only associated with an increased risk of diabetes if you had a risk factor for diabetes. And the reason that this pushed the numbers to being statistically significant overall in the, in the trial as a whole is because there was about twice as many patients that had prediabetes than those that didn't have prediabetes. And so when you think about it that way, it makes sense as to how that, that could potentially push it into being a statistically significant statistical anomaly, quote unquote. Mm. Hmm. Did, um, did anybody bring up the fact that uh, the primary endpoint, when you actually look at like the absolute risk reduction, isn't as impressive as the thought of maybe potentially giving someone diabetes if they have a rest. Did anybody, when you like, when they graded you and your grandparents, did anybody bring that up at all? No, nobody brought it up. So yeah. you, you prepared me for nothing. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> <laughs> no, so one of my thoughts was, and one of the things I you know try to do as an advisor is I come up with things that they may ask. And um, one of the things that uh, I was thinking is if at first glance, if you look at like just looking at the primary endpoint of the study, you know, the, the numbers, you know, obviously there's statistically significant, but um, the actual instances when you think about it from a clinical standpoint, like 44 events versus uh, 91 in the placebo, um, for the primary outcome, you know, it's not a huge reduction, but the big thing about Jupiter is it was primary prevention. So even if you didn't feel comfortable with, you know, the diabetes, even though it's a low risk, you just, you can't run that risk with your patients, you just don't feel comfortable with that. There's still a whole lot of um, data, like significantly more data with secondary outcomes. So when you have, this is only primary, they've never had an event and you're treating with a, a statin for potential risk factors. So you're saying risk benefit wise, secondary prevention, of course. Yeah. Like it's a no, in my opinion, it's like kind of a no brainer. Like right. the, So the only time you'd really think about it, at least based on this trial is if it's primary prevention and if they have a risk factor and you just don't want to push them over the edge. Yeah. And, and for me, it's not even so, I don't, I would still say if the person has high LDL yeah. and triglycerides and whatnot. Like it's probably, I'd still be very comfortable yeah. doing that. I just, yeah. I always bring that point up just in case someone tries to like get that as a counterpoint. Mm-hmm. So we shut them down before they even get a chance to yeah. open their mouth. And then even That's how we do it here, you know, to, to build on that, if you go and you actually look at the inclusion and exclusion criteria of the Jupiter trial, they basically, they handpicked people that were already, not only was it primary prevention, but these people were very low risk to begin with. They Anybody that had an LDL level of over 130 was excluded from the trial because they were considered to be too high risk. And So it's act, I mean, that's very impressive for, in, the, in favor of the statin and risk reduction, I guess, because people at really low risk, it's still decreased events. Exactly. And I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I don't, if we just pulled you know, a hundred people off the street. I don't know how many people we would actually find with an LDL level of less than one thirty. Yeah. So probably just Mike. Probably. Yeah. LDL, LDL less than one thirty <laughs> and adiponectin or whatever it is so off the much, charts. So Trace. much adiponectin, it's ridiculous. That's why I run. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, so maybe maybe not like a practice changer, but something to consider if um, you know, if you have a patient who 
just things start going all out of whack after you give them a stat or after you give them crystal or something. Yeah. And, and that's especially in, you know, like, like you said, in that, in that primary prevention type of, of scenario, the, the really interesting data comes, at least in, in my opinion, the, the data that's the most interesting comes from a, a cohort study that was done with patients from the VA, the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. This was this was a huge study over almost three hundred and fifty thousand patients. Because the VA, you can count on there being like a million people yeah. in the study. Yeah. So this is the study was was huge. It's obviously limited by the fact that it's a it's a cohort study, not a randomized control trial. And you know you can you can poke holes in the data and, and that kind of thing. But if you look at the data from the study, statin therapy patients that had diabetes, because this study looked at patients that both had diabetes and didn't have diabetes. And those that had diabetes, they they looked at a, a fasting blood glucose level at, at the beginning, the most the new the oldest one that they had record of, and then the newest one that they have had record of. And the change, the average change in the in the oldest to the newest was 39 milligrams per deciliter. So like that patient that I was I was mentioning earlier where the the guy who has had his his you know diabetes are under control fasting blood glucose levels in the in the 120s and all of a sudden he was up in the 140s 160s now you see where that's coming from so in the patients that have diabetes you kind of compound some of the issues that are already on you know going on and why they have diabetes especially type 2 diabetes and it makes it worse potentially and so this compounding may lead to an even greater increase in, in blood glucose levels compared to those patients that don't have diabetes. Now, the kicker to this is that even though statins were associated with an uh, increase in blood glucose levels of 39, patients that weren't taking statins had an increase of 29. So not when you look at 39 versus 29, it's not as you know, it, it kind of stark of a, of, a, of a number as if you just looked at 39 in a, in a vacuum. But still, 39 compared to 29 is, is enough to make a significant difference as far as control of diabetes is concerned and that kind of thing. So, again, this is a, this is a cohort study, so they weren't able to, you know, account for confounders and, and things like that. They were able to account for some, some potential medications that could increase blood sugar levels, but not all of them. They unfortunately couldn't look at things like corticosteroids and, and other medications like that that are, are they couldn't main, see that they could not hmm. the only ones that they could see were beta blockers aspirin calcium channel blockers and ACE inhibitors and so those were the only four potential confounding medications that they had access to were there any specific statins in this one or was it just like you're on a statin or you're any not? any statin anybody that was on a statin and had two blood glucose levels on file were was included, and that's how we end up with almost three hundred fifty thousand patients being, hmm. being in this trial. So you can you can compare again the the increase associated for patients with diabetes is is thirty nine uh, milligrams per deciliter with statin use and twenty nine with non statin use for patients that didn't have diabetes. It was only a, a, an average of seven increase in in their fasting blood sugar with statin use compared to four for the non statin use. Hmm. Which I guess I would still say if it was my patient, I'll take 10 extra points for the cardiovascular benefit you get from a statin still. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. Yeah, nonetheless. but you can use the data that, that was uh, compiled in this trial to kind of make sense of what was happening in the Jupiter trial. So if a patient does not have diabetes and you increase their blood sugar by 7, 
for most people that don't have a risk factor for diabetes, that's not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like you're, you're at, you know, one, 100, you're now at 107 or you're at 86, you're now at 93. Like, okay, big deal. No one cares. But if you have prediabetes already, that seven increase in your blood sugar could push you you from, yeah, it could push you from 133 to 140. And all of a sudden we're now in a, in a position where that's, that could potentially lead to a diagnosis of, of diabetes given other, other factors and that kind of thing. So, and before we kind of like sum it all up with the actual guidelines and whatnot, this is totally improv. I just want to see what you all think. What, if you were truly worried about, let's say you like in your case and you maybe give us some insight on what they did, but let's say you give a statin, it makes the blood, blood sugar go out of control. What would be the diabetes medication of choice if you wanted to stay on the statin? Uh, I mean, I would still say metformin. I'm thinking metformin, but I'm also thinking GLP-1. Yeah. Because if, and the reason I say that is because um, you won't necessarily get the same insulin secretion from the beta cells, but you're inhibiting glucagon, which would be ramped up because if your insulin is being um, blocked from production because of the statin, you're going to have an increase in glucagon, which is going to start causing gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis and all that fun stuff. And so if we can inhibit the glucagon secretion, I feel like that would at least inhibit that spike that you get in uh, the glycogen breakdown into glucose again. True, which, which would account for the you know increase from the statin. But the pre-diabetic patients are going to have other things going on too still. So yeah, it's not yeah. just the statin that's increasing their sugar. Right, 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 of course. Yeah. Um, but that also would help with the weight loss. And then maybe they can, since we have a GLP-1 approved Get a little for, more adiponectin. Gotta get <laughs> adiponectin in your life. What is wrong with you? <laughs> what, what, what did you guys do with that patient? Do you remember? Uh, did you ever I, see the outcome of it? I did not, unfortunately, see the outcome. All I was able to do was provide an information of, yes, your statin may have caused this patient to lose control of his diabetes, yeah. and then she went off and, and did. Did you make, did you guilt trip her? No. I'd like, be like, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a good idea, though. That's yeah. it. Keep that in your back pocket yeah. for later. It, it'd be interesting, though, when the insurance asks for a PA because they're not a metformin for the GLP-1, and the doctor's like, yeah, he's on a statin, so I want to do my GLP-1 before metformin. They'd be like... Hmm? What? And I'm like, can I speak to someone who knows what they're talking about, please? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I mean, I, I still don't think that this would be a compelling indication to... Not do a statin. Not, a, not do a statin, but B, kind of, you know, take the ADA guidelines and throw them to the wind. And, yeah. And, and I, th- I think it in a, in a patient that was pre-diabetic, you started them on a, on a statin, they developed diabetes. I still think that the way to go would be to start with metformin and yeah. then go from there. Yeah. I don't think it necessary. I don't really think it changes anything other than being aware that that's a possibility. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's kind of what the guidelines exactly. sort of echo. I mean, exactly. they, they basically just say you need to take it patient specifically, especially in primary. I feel um, like that's the, that's the scapegoat for any guideline is it has to be very patient specific. You got to make sure it's patient specific. Do you see how negative my co-host is? <laughs> so negative all the time. This is well, what I deal with. I'm the positive light here. And exactly. Mike <laughs> is the optimist. Exactly. <laughs> so optimistic about the drug companies. <laughs> if you spin that in a, in a positive light, mm-hmm. you, can, you can think of it in a way of, the again, the, the data here is, it, it shows that this is a real thing that happens. This is a real thing to, to be concerned about and to talk to your patients about. But it's kind of like what you were, you were saying, Cole. This, this pales in comparison to the ASCVD risk reduction that you get with a statin. Right. So, and the other thing is, is that depending on which studies you look at, and I found probably at least 10 different meta-analyses that were done on 
whether or not statins cause diabetes. And then if they do, which ones are more likely to cause diabetes and that kind of thing. And the results are all over the place. And that was one of the things that was the most interesting to me to find out was that it's, it's basically at this point, it's, it's pretty well accepted that this is, this is a thing that happens, but anything beyond that is very much up for debate still. And yeah. so because we have that kind of open-ended, we don't really know what's happening here, it, it gives us the ability to, to look at each patient individually and take all of their risk factors into account to see, should you really be starting on a statin? Because your ASCVD risk is not that high, but you are at risk for developing diabetes, so, so maybe not. Or you know, maybe I start you on pravastatin, which depending on which meta-analysis you look at may be protective against diabetes or may also cause diabetes. So it's, you know, again, it just falls into that patient-specific thing, which may be a cop-out, but at least in my fourth year of pharmacy school, very optimistic mind. <laughs> that, you're, you're, not, you're not jaded like, like Cole's become. It'd be yeah. a fun, I have become more jaded in the last year and a half. Uh, it'd be a fun conversation to have with a patient. Uh, so I want to start you on the statin. Your LDL's about 120. Uh, it's a really great medication. They're very cheap. Uh, they're well tolerated. Except um, for the ones that get diabetes. It's only once a day and you're walking out the door. Oh yeah, it can cause diabetes. Um, so but just be aware of that. But so. don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. We're going to we're gonna do this. So, and, and the other thing is, if you think about what? it, like a lot of the times, at least, I mean, this is, this is kind of biased in my opinion just because this is the patient population I work with the most. But usually when we start monostatin, it's because they're coming to us for diabetes yeah, right. care anyway. Almost like and exclusively. We, and so we, it's like, well, it's, well, it's already happened. So, yeah. and we have evidence from like the CARDS trial where we mm -hmm. add on a tour of a 10, um, we get some awesome reductions in, you know, the primary outcome of that trial. So I feel like there's a large segment. I don't even know if it's patients. It probably is patients who like to take things about like really popular medications and similar to vaccines and find reasons not to use them. Mm -hmm. And this is like one of the things that they grab onto. Well, I heard it can cause diabetes. I heard it can do this and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, so, the, so it's super important at that point to just lie and be like, no, you didn't. That's the best. That, that is the best way to treat patients, Mike. Just lie. Just, just lie right through. But at, at least we're informed and we can talk about the the we can minimize the you know the concern. Yeah. Or bring up um, what was it a apoponectin. And then just go deep into that. And then you're like, give me the statin. Never yeah. mind. Listen to this. Yeah. So your options are to keep listening to Mike talk about nothing that you care about or just take the, <laughs> take, take the, the drug. <laughs> take Mike the will not stop talking until you agree to take the drug. It works 60% of the time. Every, <laughs> Every time. time. <laughs> All right. Um, what else? Anything? Um, so basically we said the ADA also says to take it patient-specifically, like you were saying, and then the lipid guidelines kind of say the same thing. They meant that both of them mention that we need to, they don't, they say that the benefits outweigh the risks and for most patients. Yeah, actually, interestingly enough, I don't think that this is mentioned in the ADA guidelines. Is it, it not? It may be because I know that the ADA guidelines are now a, a, you know, what they call a living document and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it may have been put in there more recently than, than what I have looked at, but Mainly, it was it was the cholesterol guidelines by the AHA, ACC, and all of the different medical organizations that kind of joined forces with them to create a, a guideline for cholesterol management. And they said exactly what we were just talking about, that you need to look at each patient specifically to see, and, and one of the sp patient-specific factors that you need to take into account is whether or not the patient is at risk for having diabetes and then developing new onset diabetes. But even in those patients that you deem it appropriate to start a statin, 
the guidelines say that it's important to even if they are at increased risk or even if you've started a statin and they develop diabetes, it's important to let the patient know that it's a lot more important for them to stay on the statin to reduce their cardiovascular risk than to stop it to potentially, quote unquote, get rid of their diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and to also emphasize to these patients the they, what they call the core principles of physical activity, so exercise, healthy diet, and then weight loss or three things that can help lower your blood sugars. So, and I, and I guess, I mean, I'm just thinking about the conversation I might have with somebody, I guess with the, the paucity of evidence is, uh, as, um, uh, up to date would say, it seems like I wouldn't even really bring it up with a patient unless like they specifically asked about it. It yeah. doesn't seem, it's not like my Alzheimer's or something that I would be like, yeah. you need to watch out for this, you know? I, I agree. I don't, I don't make a big to do about the diabetes portion either. I would say I, I'm kind of curious to see how many people actually do and how yeah. many people don't get on a statin because of that. Right. Um, basically, the ADA guidelines say that for patients of all ages, because again, they're, it's a little different for them because they're already dealing with patients that have diabetes. Mm-hmm. But they do uh, talk about like if you have a ASCVD risk, the ten-year risk of greater than twenty percent. They say right off the bat, high-intensity statin, and um, if you are less than forty but you have some sort of um, ASCVD risk factors, then um, you can start moderate intensity. Uh, 40 to 75, they say moderate intensity, even if uh, you don't have any sort of, like just for pure primary prevention, mm-hmm. that would be from the uh, CARDS trial. Yeah. yeah, I feel like they just they put, mentioned the diabetes thing in the guidelines just to kind of legitimize the concern, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, doesn't necessarily yeah. change anything. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean... And Very then, interesting, though. Yeah, I, just, I thought it was all nonsense, so... Yeah. Fascinating. You must be so embarrassed. I'm so <laughs> embarrassed. Can't believe I brought up Crestor so early on. Oh my gosh. I was, so as soon as you said stupid. it, I was like, oh no. <laughs> what a moron. <laughs> this guy's ruined his career right here. We're all in. You saw it here live. So, um, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, so, if you were going to like pick your moderate intensity go to and your high intensity go to, do you have one so based on what you've read so far? I'm so, not saying it's right, but you know, just in your opinion. It's, it's, again, it's, it's all patient specific because, I mean, like I said, if, if you look at the data, there's some evidence out there that says that pravastatin may be protective against the formation of diabetes. But I also feel like, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think, I think pravastatin is actually one of the more, of, of the statins that has the most side effects associated with it. Is that, is that correct? It's uh, funny because I generally associate it with less. So I, I usually associate like simvastatin with having, maybe which I'm always, maybe that's what I'm thinking, I'm always about, thinking yeah. of my allergies so, though, so that's why. So when, like for instance, in that particular, uh, the primostatin study that was studied in older patients, it was mm-hmm. like one of the only, you know, um, times where we studied it in patients over 75. I think they went to 82 yeah, for that uh, PROSPER trial. PROSPER trial, yeah. They, um, they didn't see any difference. Um, to my knowledge, they didn't have any difference in, um, there was that significant, or even met significance for, um, LFTs, uh, increases or the myalgias that I can remember. Um, I do remember the one thing about that though, is there was a increased risk of cancer. I believe in that trial. It was either that one or TNT. I can't remember. Um, I should have looked this before I started talking, but, um, <laughs> one of them had an increased risk. I think it was prosper. had an increased risk of, um, instance of cancer. And that was a huge concern yeah. about that. So I think that's one of the reasons why probably got a bad rep, but I know, 
I mean, the way I, I'm looking at now after seeing this data and stuff, I kind of feel like Prava would be my go-to for moderate. Yeah. If they've, it's primary prevention, if mm-hmm. they don't have any issues. Plus, it's a hydrophilic statin, so you don't have to worry as much in theory about the myalgias and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then if the person's actually had an event, then I would go a Torva 80. Yeah. And because the Rasuva has already showed some mm-hmm. issues, so I, I don't have necessarily the same stuff showing that with the Torva. And yeah. I have a lot more outcome data with the Torva anyway. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the same thing. It's funny because I, I used to think it's Prava as being, oh, it's so wimpy. Like, don't use Prava stand. Because I guess we were always like high intensity, high yeah. intensity. Uh, but yeah, the Olympic guidelines changed 15 times before we right. graduated. Exactly. Yeah. But as far as modern intensity goes, yeah, it seems like the more data I see, the more I like um, yeah. Pravastatin. Yeah, I feel like the only downside to, to having Pravastatin be your go-to moderate intensity statin would be in the case that you do need to increase from moderate to high intensity, that you can't just stick with the same drug and increase. Right, because you could hang out with a... Torva 20 mm-hmm. or 40 until it's yeah. time for them to have a high intensity. And so then that's true. If, if something happens where they need a high intensity, you can just say, hey, like take two of, of the tablets that you have and then we'll send you a new prescription and it won't be, you know, it won't be an issue. And this is something that happens. I don't know if I just have a weird sample size, but I feel like this <laughs> happens a lot where a patient will pick up a 90 day supply of a medication and then two weeks later, oh, turns out I don't need to be on this anymore. So I just paid $25 for something that I have to flush down. Can my I toilet. return this? Yeah. Yeah. I'm only taking some of them. Yeah. Oof. Um, I guess that definitely is a, is a concern, but, but I, I mean, compared to, there goes the, my theory. Thanks. I yeah. appreciate it. Well, Jeez. compared to all of the, but other, I mean, the Toro 40 doesn't have mortality data like 80 and we have some good safety data with Pravo. You can go either way. So yeah. yeah. yeah thank you, Cole. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Yeah. I'm always trying to affirm you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Zach's over here trying to make me look like an idiot. <laughs> I'm trying to take every podcast, man. Dude, it's not going to be hard for you. <laughs> You'd have way more <laughs> listeners than we do, trust me, in five seconds. People are like, oh, finally, someone that knows what they're talking about. <laughs> this is perfect. Cool, Somebody man. Somebody who finally prepared for a podcast. Yeah, I know, right? This is legitimately by far the most we've prepared, and that's because Zach talked the whole time. This is clever. We're kind of cheating by getting somebody to do their grand rounds because I've right. already put all the research and all, oh all the work and do it. We just showed up. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Actually, I, I will say, I was I was there listening to the, you know, I, I had to sit here like very still and like while he was talking the whole time and learning, and, you know, the first time around. So I feel like I, I feel like it was right there with him in the had trenches. There the whole the time. The whole 30 minutes. Didn't get him to go to the bathroom. Didn't get up once. Nothing. I, I got up two times. I had, just <laughs> I had his undivided attention 75% of the time. 75% of the time. The other 25 time. I was texting now. <laughs> cool. Cool, man. Um, anything else you want to add on there? That was good. That was good stuff. That was great. I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's really about it. So Way to set the bar high, too, man. Like I'm, I can't. We need. What kind of trash do you have for your classmates that listen to this podcast? Anything? Just tell them. Should they give up now? Uh, basically, well, it's August, so half of them have already gone. So yeah, you know, it's only been going three three months. Half mm. of them. Come on, Cole. Yeah, half. Nah. They finish in like you talk, know, talk trash. March or something. Yeah. Nah. Nicole sounds stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's the favorite thing to do on the podcast. Yeah. So we we've been doing the the grand round since halfway through June. So I think we're only about I don't know a third of the way through. You guys hear that? You guys are in trouble. <laughs> I have to follow Zach. Are you kidding me right now? Nah. Don't don't worry about it. I it's, would just give it's up. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's really not. In fact, I I kind of think it's pretty funny whenever I hear students talking about like. Like getting freaked out about mm-hmm. it because especially now and obviously it's way different now that I've had a lot more experience. But you know, I do an hour and a half lecture twice mm-hmm. a week now, so when I hear thirty minutes, I'm like, yeah. I can literally bullcrap my way through <laughs> yeah. something for thirty it's, minutes. It's the thought of the fact that you have literally you can't graduate until you pass this, right? So 
in theory, you have your entire career riding on one 30-minute presentation. Right. So It's really, as long as you start early, it really is no big deal. It's, yeah. when, it's when you procrastinate that people start freaking out. But if yeah. you start early, it's no big deal. I definitely procrastinated, and I definitely was freaking out about it. So <laughs> you, wrote, would not. you wrote me like, hey, man, sorry. I'm, I'm like, bro, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> I would have yeah. done the same thing. Yeah, well, I was, You're talking to a legendary procrastinator. Yeah. This is like the I, one and, time I didn't. I actually and like, I still made yeah, it. I actually like started early. Yeah, I'd no. see, in, in this scenario, I started on time, but then, then I... You had to take a break. I had to take a break. yourself. Exactly. I was I like, man, you. I'm good. And then two weeks out, I was like, okay. That was a longer... That was... That was refreshing. <laughs> yeah. That was, a, that was a really nice break I had. See, I don't call that procrastination. I call that confident. Exactly. Because you're like, all I need is a week. Exactly. You know, people take three months. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I watch, work. This, watch this, ma. <laughs> I work best under pressure. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. I look. I work so much better when I know that I'm going to lose everything the next day if I, <laughs> if I don't pass My this. life is over if I don't do this. That's when I do my best. Ah, all right. Exactly. Time to study. <laughs> Maximum <laughs> effort. Oh, oh gosh, that's the worst ever advice we could have ever given students. Yeah, students right at the end. Don't students, students, like, just I in. just I just realized my my mom is listening to this podcast and she on Instagram and she said, "Yep, that's true." <laughs> <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> yeah, and, students just ignore the last three minutes of what Mike has been saying. Yeah, just ignore that. That was for later when you graduate, then you can talk trash. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> Trust me. Cool. All right, man. Thank you so much. Hey, we'll thanks for having me. Tell yeah, your classmates to uh, bring some more cool grand rounds to the table. So yeah. we're running out of topics. Yeah. We don't even know what episode we're on, as you saw when we started yeah. the recording. Yeah, but ultimately, there's just there's endless topics. We just got to pick yeah. one, and yeah. unfortunately, we only know like six of those I endless know. topics. So We've that's learn. yeah, yeah. The, the really thing cuts that into our time. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that I really enjoyed about being on this podcast is the really high degree of professionalism that you two bring. <laughs> oh to the my table, gosh, so. it's legendary. Exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, these mics are professional. That's that yeah. is very true. That's it's that's true. Honestly, the same the ones Joe Rogan uses. Are you kidding me? That's the most professional thing in the room right now. By so. far. What about our skeleton? You like him? Close second. Close second. Cool. I'll I take think it. He, yep. I think he might take the mics. He's pretty cool. Yeah, he's pretty cool. I don't know. It, the the hat kind of kind of throws it off. Pretty I feel. Sp- I actually feel like that fits the podcast more than anything because it's like, well, he's professional except for that weird flat bill hat he's exactly. wearing. Exactly. He, he was, also was apparently like a uh, vampire in another life because it looks like he's got some fangs. That's just where I forgot to take all the wrapping the, off of him. Oh. He okay. doesn't have fan. That's just a thing holding his jaw shut, uh, okay. which means we need to get him a cigar. That would look cool. Is that what we need to get him? I just came up with that just now. <laughs> it's great. That's a good job. <sighs> Write that down some more. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of that blabbing on. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Um, big thanks to Zach for coming on and doing that. I know he's busy with rotations right now, so appreciate the time. Um, if you guys have any questions comments concerns um anger issues you want to throw out our way um feel free to email us our, our email addresses will be in the uh, show notes um or you can hit us up on any of the social media platforms um also if you really really want to support the podcast you can get one of the coolest shirts slash hats slash all the other stuff on the website you go to our shopify account you can see um some of the stuff we have for sale now. I have somebody ask about that. So where, where, how can they access it? I'll, I'll put the link up on uh, Instagram and for uh, I'll, in the show notes. But okay. yeah, it's basically just coreconsult um, slash rx.myshopify.com. Um, but we'll put the links up there. It's going to be linked to Facebook and Instagram here soon. I'm just trying to learn how to do it. <laughs> so it's taking me a little bit of time. But uh, I, yeah, we're gonna we have that coming up. We got a bunch of other stuff we're working on, but we'll reveal later. Some other guests that are hopefully pretty cool. But uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. If you like the podcast, leave a comment. We'd love to read them unless they're mean. Then we 
I'm kind of still like those because they're kind of funny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Later.